Welcome to the realm of magic and mystery, classic horror and sci-fi. You are now entering the House of the Unusual podcast with your hosts, Eddie and Joe. It's on the internet. We're live now, guys. We're live. Hello, buenas noches. We're just live. No, now, we're all ready to start. Let's we're ready to rock and roll. Let me do the intro really quick, and we're all set. All right, welcome guys to another episode of House of the Unusual. <laughs> My name is Joe. With me as always is Eddie, and our special guest tonight is Dr. Roberto. So guys, Hello. how's it how's it going? Hello, gents. How are we doing? Is anybody watching us tonight or it's just a lot of people watching us? We're uh, really we're on Facebook, right. we're on YouTube, and we are on uh Instagram. We, we, better keep entertained. we better keep them entertained, though. They'll okay, shut us so off. We're going to talk, uh, Joe, uh, you had a topic that was very interesting. And, uh, doc, you know, the doc here, he's uh, uh, one of us. Oh, he's like my age. We grew up in the same era, same time, same time zone. And you wanted to ask some questions about, not ask, we were going to discuss some questions concerning robots. Yeah, there was a there. Well, before we get into it, uh, Dr. Roberto, why don't you let our audience know a little bit about yourself since this is your, your first time on with us? Right. Yeah, actually, I've never been on a, a program like this. So um, I'm not really very professional at this. So actually, I'm a medical doctor. I'm a friend of Eddie. We've known each other for probably more than 30 years. You know, on I'm and off, we go to friends. I feel for you. <laughs> we had a good relationship. I don't know. He's just like an easygoing guy. And uh, we knew each other from the hospital where we both worked. So I'm a medical doctor. I practice medicine. Actually, Eddie comes to my office. I take care of his family. So um, we're interested in the same things, Eddie and I, because he grew up, he was from New York. I was from New Jersey, but he would come to New Jersey on weekends. And we kind of did the same things because he really lived his life in New Jersey. And that's where I grew up. So we would go to the same stores, play in the same places, do the same thing. And that time, you're talking like the, um, you know, like the mid, mid early 60s, uh, late 60s. Um, the world really wasn't that sophisticated then. So what, what do we have? We had like black and white TV, a couple programs and um so when we played as children, we ended up doing a lot of the same things, going to the same places. And he brought this up in one of his shows, the thing about using your imagination and how it's yeah. dramatically different now. The children actually don't use their imagination. For example, my father brought me home this telephone once. It was an old telephone with little buttons on it. You know, it had like you go to different uh, uh, extensions. Well, I took this phone and I would play with it and I would pretend I was on a rocket ship and I was hitting, you know, one for takeoff, one for landing, one for going into nice. orbit. And I would play with this phone for like hours, you know, in your imagination. So he would do things like that too. One, so the other day I'm talking to him and I said, Eddie, like, did you like school? Because I just finished a program in medical education. It was going on for six months, which is horrible. It was draining me. So I asked Eddie, did you like school? He said, no, I hated school. I said, what did you do all day? I said, I know what you did. You daydreamed, didn't you? And he said, exactly. 
So he would, we would fantasize about things. And the whole thing about the magazine, you would read these comics. And then it was all like this stuff at the end of the magazine. Like you could get like little tricks and things. And there was the submarine Eddie had. Did he tell you about the submarine? Oh, yeah. So I knew about the submarine. He starts telling me about it. I said, Eddie, I wanted that submarine so bad, my mother wouldn't buy it for me. She said, that's a piece of junk. You can't have that. Well, the submarine is like he's the only one in the universe with. Yeah. And, like, and that was a fantasy thing. I would pretend I was on a submarine. You'd play with that for hours, and um, that was it. It was all in your imagination. It was in your brain. I don't want to take up your show because I'm not that an interesting person. No. Anyone, you say something. No, that, no, that's exactly the stuff we talk about. And like you said, we did talk about, you know, using your imagination. <laughs> Excuse me. And, and um, you know, stuff as we did as a kid. And, you know, tonight our topic you know, we're going to talk about robots and artificial intelligence, but that, you, you know, what you said kind of brought me back to when I was younger and I remember wanting to like, you know, cause we, we didn't, when we grew up, we didn't have much money. So it was kind of left to whatever we could find to use our imagination to play you with. And I wanted, yeah. And I wanted to be a robot. So I had to create really? my own, you know, robot for myself. So, you know, like many kids, we use the Pringles cans, you know, we wrap them with tin foil and put them on our, you know, put them on our hands. And, you know, we put tin foil around our face to, you know, and whatever we could to make ourselves look like a robot, you know, maybe we, we put a box on us, you know, cut out a part for the head and spray painted it silver or whatnot and put it on. And we, we did what we could, you know, using our imagination to become a robot, you know, instead of going out and buying some elaborate costume or whatnot, we, we had to use, you know, what we had and it it was fun. You know, I have great memories of, you know, doing stuff like that and walking around the neighborhood and chasing my little sister around. So, you know what you're talking about? You're talking about your youth because you were free then and you had no responsibilities. And we all look back on that because it was the first time that was when you were truly happy because you didn't know any better and you had no responsibilities. Right. I try not to have any now. (laughs) There were really just two robots, right? It was a guy from Lost in Space and Robbie the robot. Were there any other robots? Well, the the Lost in Space one was the first one that actually turned me into loving robots. And then Robbie appeared in Lost in Space, but prior to Lost in Space is known from the movie Forbidden Planet. Right. But what happened with the Forbidden Planet, they also did one that um, that Robbie appeared. I think it was called The Lost uh, Boy or I forgot the name of the movie, but there was another movie that Robbie appeared in. But then he appeared in The Lost in Space in one episode where uh, Robbie is the robot toy. And it was I think it was called Clash of the Robots. I forgot the name of the episode in Lost in Space. But the two robots would fight. Will Robinson finds Robbie, fixes him up. They warn him not to do it, but they fix him up. And then when they fix him up, he goes and, you know, has a fight with the other robot. And so far at the end, the robot wins from Lost in Space. But what it did is, as a kid, it made me be afraid of Robbie the robot because they, they portrayed him like in a, some type of deadly robot. And I, I got scared of him. I was later introduced to Robbie as I grew older. And I got to tell you, Robbie is probably the most popular robot in history. And don't forget, Dr. Gort, from the day the Earth stood still. Right. Oh, that's right. Remember him with uh, Rennie? Michael oh, Rennie? Michael Rennie. Go ahead. I mean, that's that's a great film. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah, you know, and that, you know, leading up to this, like I was talking with Eddie, you know, uh, the other day is, you know, robots are robots and artificial intelligence there. You know, it's it's pretty big in the, the news media now. So I was doing a little digging and I was surprised to see that about, you know, the invention or, you know, starting with, you know, kind of like ro- robotic um, stuff started around like 3000 B.C. and you know, people, they were trying to add robotics to everyday stuff to make it easier, you know, for them. So over the years, you know, it started, you know, progressing. And then really around the early 1900s is when, you know, robots, artificial intelligence really started to take over with guys, you know, like Asimov and, you know, you had all the stories in the pulps and and the movies and all that. And, um, you know, it was like around 1920 when, the actual term robot really, you know, started well, to become prominent. Yeah. And, and it's, it's kind of funny. From? What's that? Where did it come from, robot? The, the, the term robot, it actually originated from a guy named Joseph Capic. He was the one who termed. Um, he, he, he coined that term robot. from a, a, a broad, I think it was a Broadway play. Or there was a play called R-U-R. It's an, it's a, I think it's a chess, not chess, but Czechoslovakia play. And it has a different language, yeah. but that's what the the they coined the term robot. Prior to that, in the early 1900s, they used to call them autom- automatons or Wait, what automatons. does that mean? Automaton. Automaton is like an automatic uh, machine. Later on, they became mechanical man. Yeah. Um, the earliest. Well, like in um, uh, what was that movie? Uh, there was a magazine called Science and Invention. I don't the know Wizard of Oz here. was the Tin Man a robot. The Tin Man was considered like a yeah. mechanical man, but you see this here. Yeah. In yeah. 1924, this ma- there was a magazine called Science and Inve- Invention, and it featured on the cover a robot, a soldier robot that right. was supposed to make an appearance in in the 1939 World's Fair. And here, this robot was supposed to disperse the crowds. You know, oh, wow! With it's a fascinating thing. But this was it a mechanical man? It actually worked. Well, according to this, he originally, like I said, the name. If you look at it, it says automaton. See, automaton. Automaton. Yeah, because they didn't call it robots until 1920. But the he's whole like the is, master of minutia. This guy. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no. But in, in the, <laughs> the early days, the early days of robotics, they used to make. I think one of the first robots ever made was a locomotive guy. It was like a steam. I don't know if I think they they destroyed him in World War Two or World War One, but it was a guy that was actually diesel power, I believe. And it's um, they used to call him like it was something like a train. I forgot his name right now. But let me ask you: Is the Star Trek: The Next Generation Data is he considered a robot? He's considered an android. Yeah, a robot. Yes, yeah, an android, artificial. An android, because yeah. remember, an android is a robot that looks close as the closest to a human being. The right. word android came later on, like probably in the late sixties. Did you ever see the episode where Data met Spock? Oh no, uh-uh. I haven't seen much of the the uh next generation. I mean, it's been years since I've seen him, but that that's what happened with that when he met Spock. I'm sure that was an interesting Well, they had this conversation where Data said he was trying to be human and Spock said he wanted to always be like a like a robot, kind of like, you know, completely logical. It was right. a very strange encounter. Um so you well, had like kind of kind of Spock was a robot in a way, wasn't he? Well, yeah, so not, you had you had the human type 
person wanting to be a robot and the robot type person wanting to be a human. Well, That's the, the, the thing with, with Spock is the Spock had no feelings. He wasn't like a robot or anything, but he was just a guy that had no feelings. He was very logical in everything he did. Well, no, his emotions would come out periodically. Exactly. Yeah, once in a while, yeah. But, you know, it's funny that they're making robots now where they're actually able to learn and they're learning how to feel, which I think is, I mean, that, that's just amazing. You know, they're they're learning how to be sad and what makes them sad and, and what makes them angry and what makes them happy. I mean, when you start really thinking about that, that's ama- that's amazing. I mean, who would have thought say of that? that? What's that? Somebody is programming that, correct? Correct. Somebody yeah. that programs into a computer. Right. Yeah. And the computers are learning. Because I think, what was it? A few, 2017, I think it was Facebook who developed two two robots and they were communicating and they actually developed their own language and nobody could figure out what the language was. So they actually had to pull the plug on the program because they didn't know what these two robots were communicating. Oh, like take over the universe. I mean, that's, well, you know, in, in a way that's kind of scary. You know, you don't well, know what they could have been let, talking to each other. Let, let me say something to you guys. One of the things that the recent robots have not progressed as quickly as they could have is because of the fear that people have put into it, such as if a robot develops like artificial intelligence, gets smart enough, will the robot turn on its creator? They've had a couple of actually fake stories in the past that made it sound like a robot. In fact, there was a journalist out of Japan in 2018 where it said that a robot killed 29 people, something like that, if I remember. Eddie, you know, if that ever happens, they're going to have to call you to solve the problem and save the universe. <laughs> I can Eddie, let me ask you something. Monster, right? Are they like um, obsessed with robots in Japan or something? Japan has always been obsessed by robots. In fact, Japan has been the world's leader in robotics probably all our lives, even in the 1950s. For what Remember? reason? For what because reason? I, you know, it's, a, it's interesting, I, I guess, because they don't feel robots like we did. Well, we were afraid robots could take over the world. I mean, if you look at every cartoon growing up, there's always a robot. There's always a guy who's an evil genius who puts together a robot to take over the world. And that itself has caused fear in a lot of the people. A lot of the humans, uh, especially in the United States, are fearful that one day artificial intelligence can you know, surpass us as humans. But what about in that show, The Jetsons? Wasn't there a robot, a, a woman she cleaned Remember up? Ro- Rosie? Rosie, yeah. yeah and that was, was her name, robot. Rosie? Yeah. yeah. She had that sound. Yeah, she, she was the, she was the maid. <laughs> you see, you can't stub Eddie. He knows everything. All right, what else? He's like the Yoda of Minutia. What else? <laughs> no, the, the basically, I guess. When he know, comes to my office, sometimes it's like a three-hour episode. I have to cancel the whole afternoon. <laughs> He goes on and on and on. The, the funny thing is, one day Dr. Boyajian goes in the hospital. They put me. To, they told me to put a display of all my comics, and I put a couple of robots in there. And when the doctor saw that, he went crazy. He goes, "That's your stuff," and I go, "That's part of my stuff." His his collection. Oh my god! I'm trying. I was trying to figure, but I'll, I'll tell you one thing though. I've been obsessed with robots and and everybody knows that I'm not going to get into it because Joe is going to kill me. But I've been looking when I was a kid, you know, seeing Lost in Space and stuff. Who didn't want to be Will Robinson? Who didn't want to have his own laser gun? And who didn't want to have a robot next to him? Right. And, you know, Doc, 
We all wanted that, just like we wanted the Polaris nuclear sub. But what happened was that I wanted to order. And if you remember, when we were kids, Doc, there was a lot of times that a lot of classrooms, no matter what school you were in, always had a bully. So somehow we, growing up, thought that if we had, especially when we read comic books, uh, the seven-foot robot or this and that, we could take over or they would listen to us. (laughs) As the ad would say, people will obey you, okay? So I saw an ad by a, a famous mail order company called Abracadabra Magic Shop that had like a kind of like a Frankenstein lookalike, and for a dollar, I can build this monster. So I sent away for that. Later on, I realized that the other ad I wanted to send out for, but it was not as complicated. It didn't look like a Frankenstein, so I didn't send out for it. So what I did is I, I procrastinated and that did not send out for it. And it became a 38-year search. I've been searching for those plants all over the planet. And I still haven't found them, Doc, on how to build a seven-foot monster robot. Where was it? In the back of the magazine? If, if you remember, Doc, they're, they're the ones that always were next to the vampire bat for a dollar. The hideous yeah. vampire bat. And... Um, I was trying to see if I, I mean, the problem is that this podcast also goes over Pandora, iTunes and stuff. And I try to not to be too visual with it because then, you know, the people that listen to us are like, hey, I can't see what they're talking about. But I did have here um, a kind of a photograph that I wanted to show what the ad is because I'm sure you'll remember the ad, Doc. But uh, as we, but anyway, that's the whole thing. I've been searching for them. So. Throughout the years, I have built myself three actual life-size robots. The first one I made of cardboard took me three weeks to finish. One day while I was at work, Maria took the chance and the opportunity to throw it out on me. And she said that it broke. (laughs) It wasn't true. She just tossed it out because I had it in my living room standing for weeks. That reminds me of like the Christmas story movie where she broke the leg lamp. And he's like, you used up all the glue on purpose. Well, <laughs> Wait, you had three made, robots, Eddie. You made three yeah, robots. The other one, the other one I built was uh, I kind of said, "Well, it's too heavy to make it uh, out of solid wood," and I wanted to make it, but I didn't want to use cardboard anymore. So I wanted to make something that would be, you know, more, you know, sturdy. So what I did is I started, but I, I built a frame out of uh, two-inch uh, plywoods, like two by twos. And I built a frame for it. And then I, I started covering it with steel. Before I finished it, I ran into a couple of technical difficulties. It wouldn't do what I wanted to do. So I had Anthony, my son, who at the time must have been like nine years old or eight years old, take a drill and he took it apart. That was the second one. The third one I started building about 20 years ago. And this one, I, what I did is I broke one of my um, original Japanese robots that I had. Not broken. I took it apart. And I started copying the same thing. And, and the way I figured if this works, I'm going to make it work. And I kind of wanted to do something like it would kind of go like this side to side and actually walk. So I started buying motors for it. I bought um, sheet metals uh, and the sheet metal. Uh, I would go to Home Depot and I buy aluminum sheet metal sh- uh, uh, sheets that are, I think, two feet by four feet. Or, I know these. Yeah, I know. What you're and I bought like 20 of them and I put it together. When I had it almost finished, Maria made me take it out of the house because she said, 
there's no room for this. And I was building it in my living room. <laughs> so I, it's right now sitting in my storage. It is halfway finished, though. Eddie, uh, you come from a culture where this is not common, correct? There's nobody you know from your culture that does this, is there? Uh, there is quite a few. In fact, uh, I found a, a colleague, you would say, of I've never met, but uh, I connected with him on my website. And Todd, the other host that helps us out with the show here, Todd Matching, connected me with him, give or take. And uh, he's actually trying to put together the original comic book robot I always wanted. And he's going to make me a 3D model of it to see if eventually it could be made life-size. But yeah, Doc, I've been I've been searching for this for what, 30-something years? I even dro- drove to Chicago, Illinois when I was younger and got married to see if the company still existed or who owned the company to see if I could find the plan somewhere. You I, never told Maria that's why you were going there, did you? No, she knew that. I, at the time, I was a fanatic. In fact, I used to run up uh, telephone bills. Back in the day when you would have to like pay for an long-distance company, right. I would start calling collectors all over the thing, and then I would get a $300 phone bill, and I wanted to kill myself afterwards in search of things I didn't have, in search of the Polaris submarine, in search of the seven-foot ghost, in search of... <clears throat> The seven-foot robot plants I never got. But you know what? Finally got everything, except to this day. It still has eluded me. I still can't find those plants, even though probably hundreds of them were sold. I mean, the guy ran the ad for almost 10 years. But that one item doesn't come up. I don't know why. I've got collectors all over the world looking for it. And you know what? There's probably someone had it stacked away in a box in their their attic and... You know, and, don't even remember they, that they have it. And they don't have actually, I'm actually trying to uh and I'm sure Doc, when you see it, you're gonna remember the uh the 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 robot. I'm trying to look it up so I can show you the uh one one day, Eddie, one day you'll right you'll, you'll find it. Yeah, one, <laughs> one day. This is the ad. Do you remember this ad, Doc? It would say how to build See, build yeah. a, a giant seven-foot-tall monster. What was that out of? It must have been cardboard, no? It was made, well, the way in my my search for this robot, when I drove to the Melton Company, where the Melton Company supposedly was in Chicago, Illinois, they had two addresses, 33 Wabash Avenue and 55 East Washington Street. It was actually the same building with two entrances. So I figured this guy cannot pay rent in a building this high class selling $1 robot plants and seven-foot monster ghosts. So then I, I found out that the reason he was in with that address is because there was a P.O. Box um, a rental area, uh, one of those private P.O. Box rentals, and it was located, I think it was on the 17th floor. So I, I, I got a hold of the janitor who had been with the building, I don't know, 40 years, almost ready to retire. And he gave me the name of the woman whose husband had passed away that owned that shop, or owned the P.O. Box rental. So they gave me the information. And when I spoke to her, she told me she remembers the guy, but can't remember his name. That was the first time. Then from there, I went over to Florida, the second address he had, which was P.O. Box DNE, Miami Beach, Florida. As a kid in the 70s, I had actually stayed three blocks away from where this guy had the P.O. box. And he was selling 
the seven foot robot plants, the vampire bat, which I'm sure you remember, Doc, for $1, and the monster ghost, the seven foot ghost, which is, I still own the original from it. And I would never sell that. To me, it's priceless. But what happened was that when I got there, the lady who was in charge, her name was Kathy. This is so funny. She goes, you're lucky I don't throw things out. Now, I'm looking. I'm actually talking to her in the mid-80s. And she says to me, you're asking me for something from almost 20 years ago. But she she goes through the paperwork. And the only information that was missing is who owned P.O. Box DNA. So I'm like, are you kidding me? So then I kept in touch with her throughout the years with the hope that she could come across the person or the name of who owned it. So when I left the post office, I, I drove up Collins Avenue, Miami Beach, to another address that he had earlier to P.O. Box DNE. When I got there, they told me the guy's name is Fields. The, everybody remembered him because... In fact, the lady, Kathy, told me the only reason I remember him is because I was pregnant. And every time I went to get the envelopes, all this loose change would fall on the floor. <laughs> I guess a lot of kids would send out, you know, for the dollar with the loose change. So she remembered him. So then from there, I kept searching. So what I did is I said, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to hit all the banks in the area and find out if this guy had an account in one of them. Because all, all this that I'm doing is to find the guy who owned the company with the hope that he had a copy of the plans that he could give me. So that was the purpose of it. In search of this robot plans, I never had, as a collector, always wanted. So I went to about two or three different banks in the area. One of them, I think it was, which is funny, it was Bank of America. I don't know if it's the same Bank of America as now, but it was Bank of America because... I think for there was a reason that it changed names and went back again to it was because this was like probably 89, 90 when this happened, 1990. So the, the, the bank manager was really helpful. And I told him the story. I said, look, I've been searching for this for so many years and I can't find it. So what he did is he said to me, hey, let me look at some records. He goes, nope, there's no information on it. So then the next thing was right to the city of Florida or the state of Florida the clerk's department and see who owned the guarantee company or the Melton company, because he would use, depending what ad he was running, he would use both names. He would use guarantee distributors in one, and then he would say melt the Melton company in other ads, depending which comic book or whatever appeared. It was always the two names. So I got back a letter from the state saying that the name never existed. So I could tell you this much. I did that in Chicago. I did that in Miami. And I found out one thing. This guy was making a fortune, but I definitely don't think he was paying taxes. So <laughs> I don't know what it <laughs> yeah, was. He was skirting was, something there. <laughs> there was something. I mean, I tracked this guy down for 30 years. I contacted Bernie Slotnick, which was the guy in charge of DC Comics. He ran ads. He was in charge of the advertising department for over 40 years. And I met him when I first started the Melton, uh, the, because if you remember, Doc, the story with me was when I, in 1989, I had a magic shop for three years and I contacted one of the original companies in the comic books. And the one I contacted was called the Fun Factory. And I was able to call this guy. I figured, you know, just, I got to be a good detective. So I figured anybody who runs a mail order company from the seventies, one has got to be Jewish. 
and two has got to be rich. So I figured in New Jersey, where can I find the owner of the fun factory? I got his name. That was Lou Weiss. But I said, where can I find him? So I figured, I looked at a phone book from Bergen County. I said, he's got to live in Bergen County. So, you know, taking a shot, I randomly called two people. The first one I called was not him. The second one, I noticed the wife stayed on the phone a few minutes. Uh, and she sounded like, yeah, yeah. So she knew what I was talking about. And she said, let me let you talk to my husband. So I go, bingo, this is the guy. So when I got on, I scared the heck out of him because he's like, who's calling me asking about a company that's been out of business since 1970? So when I, <laughs> I told him, we spoke on the phone about two months later, we met in person. He agreed to start the company again with me as a partner. So he laid out all the cash. I had no cash. He was wealthy. So he laid out all the cash. And in 1993, we ran a full page ad in DC Comics which was the last ad that ever ran for novelties in a comic book. And that was the fun factory that I owned at the time with Lou Weiss. And what happened is we ran a full page ad and I featured my seven foot ghost on that ad because I had now developed my own version of the ghost, which took me over 10 years in the making. I tried everything possible to make it better than the original. And you wouldn't I give up. I didn't give up. In fact, behind me, um, I developed, and, and I'll show, I've developed special editions of it to this day. And I boxed them. And here is the original ad. This is the Johnson Smith version. And then together with the Johnson Smith version, I actually made a cheaper version, which so far I probably sold over two to 3,000 of them. And in this envelope, and it's basically the same way that the original 1970s one, the one that me and you grew up seeing in comic books had. So what happened is that when I, you know, after Lou Weiss came, Lou Weiss gave me the phone book that, that belonged to the, uh, the fun factory. And in the phone book, he had the connection to almost all the people that could possibly know the melting company. So what I did is uh, he also took me to New York city to fifth Avenue to a guy who had a company which did his advertising, which was called Filer and Levy Advertising. And this company had also helped Lou Weiss before Lou Weiss started the Fun Factory in the 1970s. He had another company, not him, not Lou Weiss, but Bob Levy from the company Filer and Levy Advertising had already started a mail order company called American Circle Corp. And Doc, if you remember, that's the company that always sold the hypnotic control book and 25 lessons and hypnotism. Oh, right, right. Books, if, you, if you remember, it shows a woman being hypnotized with the stars in the back. That's American Circle Corp. And so American Circle Corp, when it was, you know, going out of, not out of business, but when it was going to turn over whatever, that guy joined forces with Lou Weiss and they started the Fun Factory. I think it was 1969 or 1970, I'm sorry, 1973, I think it was. And it stayed in business till like 1981, 82. Then it restarted again with me and him in 1993. And when we started it, I started connecting with the people that Lou Weiss knew, such as Bernie Slotnick, who had been with DC Comics for years. And now that Lou Weiss introduces me to the guy, I am now able 
to ask him, do you know this melting company that has been running ads in comic books for 40 years and I can't find them? <laughs> Everybody, yeah, I remember the guy. I don't remember his name. He would come, always hit a brick wall. So then, as I was progressing, through Lou Weiss, I started talking to the CEO of Johnson Smith Company. Now, Johnson Smith Company is the company that sold the ghost I just showed you in the box. And the Johnson Smith Company, Doc, is the one that you grew up buying stuff from. Me, they're the ones that were in back of every comic book, together with Honor House products. So Craig Taubeck would not really talk to me, but when I told him I was partnered with Lou Weiss, who had tried to hire him in the 1970s and bring him over to New Jersey to run the fun factory, he now listened to me. I was able to talk to him. Remember, Doc, I'm about 19, 20 years old. People don't respect a person who's broke, just trying to go into the business with <laughs> these guys in their 50s and 60s that are millionaires. So then finally, <laughs> in order to become a good friend with Craig Taubeck about 15, I would say 20 years ago in, in probably 1998, I drove, or probably even, even after that, I drove 356 miles from my mother's house in Miami to Bradenton Beach, Florida to have lunch with Craig Taubeck. What happened was that 74-year-old Craig Taubeck and 76-year-old uh, Lou Wise became good friends. And over the years, they were my connections as to where I could find the Melton Company, who made the seven-foot Frankenstein, who made the skeleton, where was the ghost made, and Craig gave me all that information. And I started building House of the Unusual, which originally my magic shop was called P&E House of the Unusual because I had a, a, a partner named Pat. So once I left the magic shop and I went, it became Fun Factory. When it became Fun Factory and we ran the ads in comic books, the guy who used to own, and you got to remember this, Doc, there was always an ad in comic books that says you get $1 million dollars for like a dollar, 50 cents, if you send away for the Funhouse catalog. The name of that guy was Jack Aboff. And apparently Jack Aboff had bought the rights to Fun Factory in when Fun Factory went bankrupt and in some auction back in the 80s. And he goes, he calls up Lou and says, hey, Lou, if you listen, you guys are using, I think you should give me about $15,000 for the use of the name. And Lou was absolutely not. So I changed it that time to House of the Unusual. But instead of House of Unusual, I added the in between. Because everybody kept saying every time I would say House of the Unusual, they said House of, no, no, House of Unusual. Oh, so then I corrected and said, you know what? House of the Unusual. And I trademarked it. But having said all that story I just told you, the greatest thing with this has been that I was able to trace keep a record off. I have all the original paperwork from the Fun Factory from the 70s, what it made every week, what it made every month. I have all the original orders that came in when me and Lou ran the ad in 1993. And let me tell you, my collection, everything I have, and I was proud to say that when I met Lou, I was able to meet, uh, well, a little bit before I actually met Lou, I went to a, uh, in 1985, I went to the Jacob Javits where they do this yearly show thing. 
And Doc, you're going to love this part. I met the original creator of the Sea Monkeys and the X-ray glasses. And when I told him I did mail order and I knew this and that, when I mentioned the guy who owned Honor House, he wasn't too happy with them because they had some legal <laughs> problems earlier. He sat me down, actually grabbed me by the shoulder, pushed me down on the seat and said, let me tell you about mail order. And he went on to tell me the story about the sea monkeys, the x-ray glasses. In fact, I became good friends with Todd Matching because apparently, you know, I knew some of that and he needed to ask me. But I met Yolanda, his wife. And, and to this day, by the way, the sea monkey empire still exists. And Yolanda owns a huge ranch in Maryland, which has the gates of the sea monkey. The guy made millions based on the x-ray glasses. And let's be honest, Doc, didn't you get the x-ray glasses when you were a kid? And the sea monkeys. You got the sea monkeys. Of course. Well, everybody. Well, Joe here in the center, he tried to set up his own sea monkeys, and he didn't have too, too, too good of a chance. Yeah, they, they all died. <laughs> now, Doc, Doc, one question that I know this is, this is for you, because I already basically told you a quick history of where I come from and how long I've been searching for this seven-foot monster rover plans. In fact, there's a book that's being written as we speak that actually is a history about that. But I wanted to ask you, when you wanted the submarine and you found out I had it, what? how exactly, what, what happened to you? Tell us your story. Well, you, you showed me a picture of it. And then that was unbelievable to see some kids playing. I still have it in my office. I keep it in one of my drawers because that was something you always wanted and you couldn't have. And that was like a... If you had it, it would be like a world of pleasure, a world of fantasy, all different things you could do with it. I think I had another toy. My, I had a toy submarine once. It was a real one, a plastic one. It had torpedoes and missiles on and stuff. I always loved submarines, so that's why I got into that. What happened with the, the watch you saw? Remember those watches they used to advertise in Boy's Life magazine? The no, there was a watch in the back of one of those magazines. It was like a... Um, it was a pilot's watch. It was a chronograph. It had all different like subdials on it. So I wanted this watch. I was obsessed with it. And of course, parents say you can't have that. It's a bunch of junk. So I never got it. I was obsessed with these watches, these pilot watches. And so it wasn't until I was like in my 30s or 40s, I finally got one, a real pilot's watch. So I have like three or four of them. And it all goes back to that childhood thing. Yeah. The the uh <laughs> That, that's what we we discussed on a, a previous podcast, you know, of what we do as adults to try to reclaim a piece of our our childhood, and you know, there it is, there with the the submarines, you know, with the watches, and you know, to a certain extent, you know, we, we all keep, you know, yeah. Try to move a little to the, I guess, left or right, because. You keep going, yeah, right there, right there. Move that way because you're kind of like off camera. Go ahead. Well, you know what it is? I'm a little sleepy right now. I'm usually in bed at 10:30. <laughs> you're in the podcast. This is. <laughs> you know what it is? Is what you're talking about? Is going back to your youth, and you know, it makes you happy because it was that only time in your life you were ever really free, and you had no responsibility. I talk about this once with people. Like we used to go down to the beach in the summertime, and for two months you had no school, you had no responsibilities. You played with your friends all day. You'd go to the beach. Absolutely. And everybody that we grew up like that remembers the same thing. And they remember how they felt then. You know, unfortunately, you can't stay like that forever. But now I'm kind of wondering, well, why do we take on so much responsibility? But, but you, you know you know what, though? Like you said, Doc, and, and like Joe said, when you're able to play with your mind and you're able to take a cardboard box and go into outer space, 
you know, just pretending. It's so much different. It's a world that you grow up with. You don't forget. It brings you back to when you're young. It keeps you when you're time, when, like you said, you had no problems, no bills. It, life was simple. It was simple as one, two, three. When you come today and you give this iPads to kids today, they play these video games, which sometimes are super violent, and it just deteriorates their brain. It destroys their personality of pretending, imagination. Yeah, they lose their everything imagination. Everything is done in a computer for them. Doc, if you remember when me and you went to Two Guys, and we went to play, because we this is the thing funny, that Joe. Me and Doc, we used to go to the same store, Two Guys, which was a, a five and dime of the time, very popular in the time. Well, it was the first low-budget department store. They had everything there. They had food. They had garden and stuff. They had sporting goods. They had toys. They had clothes. Everything was there, but everything was cheap, so your parents would, would go there. The video games we had there, every two, every two guys would have a section where they, you know, those bowling alleys that the pins you put like a dime in it and you throw the the, the little little balls and you know the skeetball they you know, call small bowling alleys whatever they call them skeetball yeah skeetballs yeah and then they had also if you remember they had this is a very important they had this video game which I'll never forget Joe this is gonna make you laugh it was a, a steering wheel you sat down you had the shifter and then what happened was the steering wheel itself, there was a stick, and on top of the stick, there was a car. And in the background, the, the background would go, right? <laughs> so when you crash, the light in the back would go, <laughs> but the car was on the stick. Only the background would move, you know? And then there was so the one that was like a, a rifle range. You would shoot a rifle at targets. That's right. That was the other one. Then when you had the rifle range, you had a real rifle. And then I think it, was, I think it used to shoot BBs from underneath inside the, the unit or something because... You would knock down the ducks, the metal thing. But anyway, one of those video games today, I've tried so hard to get one, man. Maria's not going to let me have a doc, you know, <laughs> unless I can put it in your office. <laughs> but uh, I would love to have one of those originals, man. I remember yeah, just, when a Just turn his office into an uh, arcade. Do you remember the Bergen Mall? Exactly. Remember the Bergen Mall when it didn't have a roof? There was no roof. There were two or three stores there. We would talk about them. He would know the places that we went because I would name I would name a place and he knew it. So this was something that went back into you know early sixties. It was one of the it was the first mall in New Jersey, I think. The Bergen it was. Mall. It was. And in the Bergen Mall was the first time I ever saw the Atari uh, twenty six Master System, which was the first Atari game. You remember that when we were young, we had those ping pong things with the little black pong. Pong was the first game. Yeah, I think it was Pong that the little ball would go peep. That was the first yeah, game there was. I still have a couple originals, by the way. <laughs> the ones I had as a kid, I never threw them out. Well, you know, you talked about how these kids play these things, but you have to understand something. It has a very addictive effect on the brain. It's almost like watching television. You just can't stop. And it's like junk food for the brain. In a way, yeah, it is very destructive. You have to turn it off. This is the difference between adding up a bunch of figures on a piece of paper and using a calculator. When you're using a calculator, you're not thinking. But if you have to go and add things up, that's a dramatically different thing because you're using your brain. You know, one of the good things about Joe here, uh, Joe, you could tell you're a writer and, and you write a lot of fiction and horror. Uh, what's your input? What's your take? We don't want um, you to just stay quiet here. In the no, background. I'm just listening to, to you, you guys reminisce. It's, it's, you know, it's making me 
you know, kind of think a lot. And, you know, he, he's right. You, you have all these games and kids are losing, you know, your brain's something that you have to, you know, just like any other, any muscle in your body, you have to, you know, use it or it's going to deteriorate. And that's what, you know, I'm always afraid a lot of these kids, they don't use their brain too much. Everything's given to them and they don't have to think or imagine. And they, they kind of lose it where, you know, we were lucky enough to, to grow up where, you know, we still had our imagination. I grew up in the eighties. So it was just kind of like when video games are becoming popular, but I, I never had, you know, video games, I think until, man, maybe the late nineties, early two thousands. So I, when I grew up, everything was, you know, you had to make your, you had to make your own, you had to imagine you had to get together with neighborhood kids and, you know, combine all your resources together to make, you know, one costume or one prop or, or whatever, you know, you were doing, you, you know, and, and a lot of that's lost now because you don't have to get together with your friends. You know, you got, you could text them over the iPad or, you know, chat with them over a video game. So there's, you know, you, you have two very different time frames. The, the situation and, and, you know, Doc, you could tell this because most of your patients, uh, you know, some are older and stuff. And I do have, which I found amazing, that the show we're actually broadcasting now. Is anybody watching this? <laughs> yes, there are. There's quite a few on right now. But the people are, are the average uh, age is between 42 and 65. Oh, I'm 65 this year. Go ahead. You're 65. See, look at that. Um but, you know, I got to tell you one thing, though, is when we reminisce and especially bring back. And, and one thing that really I found amazing last week, I had a magician. Now, this guy makes his living full time as a magician. He's done it for over 37, 40 years. Uh, I think almost. What did he say, Joe, about 37 years? Yeah, something? he was close to 40 years. 40. Doing and he's it, yeah. made a living as a full time magician and still does. And. You know, the stories he had to tell, and, and it's just fascinating. But the best part about it, that this tells you how much people still love this stuff, even though they don't, you know, admit it or whatever, but people still love to be bringing brought back to their childhood. The moment I put it in, my freaking channel, bazoop, it got more subscribers. It had a, a couple of hundred people watching. What caused that? I think it was just the fact that he's a magician. When you put horror, magic, people like monsters. We talked about where in the late 1960s, I I, I brought that up. I, I, I asked him if I was right because I wasn't 100% sure. But I think prior to the 1960s, in the 1940s and 50s, America was very popular with the spook shows. All magicians did Vanderbilt acts, you know, everything that was horror, sideshows. They always had some type of, not evil, but some type of monster mayhem in it. In the 1960s, when Walt Disney made the Haunted Mansion and became super popular with all the stuff they did, they kind of toned down the horror stuff a little bit to make it easier on kids like me and you that growing up. So when you watch a Mickey Mouse the haunted house, the black and white, or it's very kind of like you would say today, user friendly for the people that watch it. It doesn't scare the kids. Prior to that, it was really macabre. 
you know, stuff like that. So it became, they toned it down in the late 60s. And today we have a mixture. But what I was telling Joe originally is anytime you spoke of magic, especially in the time of Houdini, a lot, especially if you remember that in the turn of the century, spiritualism was hitting this country like never before. Worldwide, the, the spiritualist uh, movement was huge. Houdini was out there discrediting all these people, making a mockery of other people. You know, basically, there were people out there ripping off people with seances and all this garbage. But what I'm saying is, when you look at the spook shows, when you look at the magic shows of the mid-30s through, the, I guess, the 50s, they were pretty macabre. You know, they really had horror to it. It was not something a young kid would watch. Once Walt Disney came in, everything right. got a, a toned down. So me and you, Doc, we were synthesized not to see that evil stuff. We had more like Mickey Mouse, the haunted house. And you know what? That's where I grew up in, just like you. And that's the era I love. That's why anything, anytime you put horror or something on something, it outsells everything for some reason. And Joe here, he knows. He owns Cult of... Crypt of Classics, which is a thing. That yeah, horror, horror is always, I mean, horror has always been big and, you know, still is to to a certain extent. I mean, I, I, I think sometimes there's the niche for classic horror is getting a lot smaller, you know, and people are kind of staying more contemporary. But, yeah, it's it's always there. And even talking with uh, uh, Chuck last week, I was kind of surprised, you know, that the spook show – uh, magic shows were were still popular because you know when I look and like you guys were talking about the mail order in the comics and the ads, you know you would see stuff for magic in there, but you know that's you kind of think of that as you know sixties and seventies and you know maybe early eighties. So I didn't really think well, it was that popular. But Doc, were you were you big into magic or or anything like that when when you were younger, going to shows or even any of the mail order stuff? Well, I wanted to ask Eddie something about this. I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. Did you know there was a magic, a small magic shop in Teaneck? It's still and, there, Doc. Can't and what it, what it was is the kids used to go hang out there. It was a place for young kids. It was a very small store. And the couple that owned it were magicians. And everybody knew who, who they were. And we would go hang out there. We would buy little oh, knickknacks right. from them. It, but, you know, it's still located there. I went to it about a few months ago. It can't be. These guys it went is, out of business 80 Kent's years ago. Magic Shop, <laughs> it's all in the same location. Kent's What's it Magic called? It was and, and it was like a hangout for kids. Four. On Route 4. Well, no, no, no. This was on the main street in Teaneck on Cedar right. Lane. It, it's on Teaneck, but you go through Route 4 and yeah. you'll see it. It's Ken's Magic Shop. I can't um, possibly be the same it's, people. It's they were the a couple. Doc. It's been there, I think, 80 years. It's, it's <laughs> one of those shops that don't last... But you know what I wanted to ask, Doc? Because we're running out of time. We've got about 10 minutes left. Yeah. And, you know, our audience, like I just said, and I mentioned the age range. Um, and it's not every day that we have a medical doctor on board. Don't make that big a deal out of it, Eddie. Well, no, it's not a big deal. But <laughs> You know, when I listened to you, I realized I wasted my entire life going to medical school. You know so much more than me. He's trying to get free medical advice off you. No, now. what I'm saying is this is what he does all the time. He's like a con man. I you always getting something. <laughs> what, out of no, but no, what I want to know is what can you tell our audience? You'll call me up and ask my opinion and ask 12 other people the same question. No, I want to ask this. Can <laughs> and you then tell he weighs us everything out. 
about health for our, our, our audience? I think he calls me first. I'm the most reliable person. And I never say no to him. And I always answer his calls. <laughs> well, some people, they're afraid when they get on the phone with them. It could be three hours. You, you know You know what's funny, though? One time me and the doctor got on, uh, we were talking about, I forgot what it was. I think it was the movie, The Atomic Submarine, that I was telling you that The Atomic Submarine, where they have a little stick and you can see the submarine in the movie. We were talking and, and I had to laugh when, the doctor tells me his phone died. <laughs> his phone died. We were just talking for over three hours. Oh. <laughs> he ran the battery out no, on but that. I'm saying, can you give us any health ideas uh, how to stay healthy in this time for today's well, people? To, well, it's it's a very simplistic thing. That's what my whole practice is. Well, what if so I'm 65 you know, you start getting older and you start realizing, well, the talk, clock is ticking. So you start to do the things that you want to do. And so in my career, it's really teaching people how to stay healthy because everybody really gets sick because they're not taking care of themselves. We bring on all these illnesses and there's more and more of it. Now, most of it's related to diet, lack of exercise, excessive stress is killing people, especially where we live. It's a very stressful area. We live. It's overcrowded. It's astronomically expensive. And New Jersey is one of the highest toxin state. So you don't realize it, but this stuff is getting into you. So it's really the food. And so you come down to about, you know, 10, 15 things you should eat. And that's it. Because if you look in nature, whatever in nature eats the same thing every day. You know, we have cereal for breakfast, a bologna sandwich for lunch, a slice of pizza in the afternoon, a hamburger. And I eat, this is not, this is not normal food. And really it's making you sick slowly, kind of like cigarette smoking. It kills you slowly. So and 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 as you start purifying your diet, you can't go back to eating junk food. So that's really what I do. You know, Doc, and you brought up a good thing about about stress, and and I, I try to try to tell people all the time is, you know, stress is stress is a huge is is very detrimental to to your your immune system, your, your overall well being, and if people would just slow down sometimes, and you know, when, and when they can, and there's always room, you can always find time for something, but. Kind of, you know, and that we've talked to this whole show, you know, give into your inner child a little bit, you know, maybe slow down and, you know, watch a show that you used to watch when you were younger and you enjoyed or, you know, maybe read your favorite book or, you know, something that that de-stresses you and, and brings you back to, you know, that time in your life, you know, that nostalgic period that, that you enjoyed. I, I think that would be, you know, a big help for people to. No, what, what, what you're saying is 100 percent right. But the problem with that idea is that everybody's killing themselves trying to stay alive and pay their bills. You know, people are financially enslaved. You don't you don't right. realize that my my father worked. My mother did. So um, you can't grow up in a normal environment where everybody's getting pulled apart in different directions. So, yeah, of course, relaxation is as important as eating and sleeping. So, I mean, we don't really put a focus on that, but nobody has time to. I talked. And the other thing is staying physically fit. There's nothing in nature that doesn't move, and we don't move anymore. We've created sedentary yeah. living. It's interesting that people are working from home. Like, this was never heard of, the working from home. So our whole world has changed. And sitting at a desk looking at a computer is the most unhealthy thing you could possibly do. Because who knows? It's just sitting. You're sedentary. It's not good for your no. body. Nothing in nature right. does that. And who knows what's coming off that screen? It's just not healthy for you. So um, you have to really learn to take care of yourself. And that's my practices. And I'll give you a diet. I'll give you some basic exercise to do. And, you know, talk to people how to stay healthy. But um, so here, here's, a, here's a good um, 
a good thing for everyone listening or watching to do is when you get some free time, get some uh, um, tinfoil, get some cardboard and, you know, make yourself into a robot, you know, like you were when you were a little kid. It'll get you moving away from the computer and, you know, kind of de-stress yourself. You know, maybe we could get, you know, someone to wrap Eddie up in, in tinfoil and run him around the neighborhood. <laughs> Let me tell you something. We got five minutes left. Uh, there is a movie talking about all the robots. Doc, I think you would really like this movie. I think it came out like four or five years ago. I think it's called Electra. It shows a a humanoid robot of a, a female humanoid robot in the cover of the movie. I I'm trying to remember what it was, but it's all about this female, beautiful female robot that she is in this environment, in this home. And there's a guy who's like a programmer and he's trying to program her or whatever. And this girl is is so, I mean, the movie itself is nice, very low pace, very relaxing. I mean, you can watch it and be very relaxed in the movie. He falls in love with the robot that she makes him fall in love with her, with her. With him, she makes him fall in love with her, and then at the end of the thing, she actually just leaves and goes into the world, and and the guy can't stop her. But the funny thing about it, though, it's a great film. I watched it, and I think Doc, you would love it, just like we like, because uh, I mean, Doc likes all the uh, submarine films. Oh, I love them. I, I all the classic World War Two sub-movies. Yeah. yeah, which one is it called? Das Boot. Das Boot is one of them. Probably was the best one. Yeah, yeah but the, the, I'm telling you, the Atomic Submarine, it's a cheesy film, but it's got a good storyline. The mm. only thing is so funny, uh, Joe, you would laugh at this when the, when you see the submarine in the water, you kind of see a little stick. <laughs> you know, it's hilarious. That's that's like the Superman. You ever seen the original Superman? Whatever his name was, Kirk something? You, you know what we need to do, Doc, is we need to, to go over to Eddie's house and... and you know, raid his closet and get that submarine out and put it together and have an adventure in the backyard, in his backyard. Then we'd have to resuscitate him. He would die. I you, you he know said he was going to sell it. He was going to sell it. And I said, Eddie, if you sell that, that will destroy everything. That's like selling the Holy Grail. I tried telling him the same thing. He can't sell it. Let me tell you something really funny. Uh, one guy, a friend of mine, he... Um, he goes by the name Doc, actually. And he actually purchased the um, Charles Atlas Company a few years back. But the reason I mentioned that is because back in 19... When I first met Lou Weiss, uh, he bought me from Rutgers University a uh, newspaper. And it had that the guy, Charles Roman, who was the co-founder of the Charles Atlas Company. Charles Roman was the guy who drew the picture where the girl gets, uh, I mean, where the guy gets sand kicked in his face. Oh, and, right. Yeah, and he made that world famous. The most, probably the most ran ad in the history of, of mankind. Yeah. Anyway, he was selling the company. And I remember uh, I contacted him and Lou Weiss says to me, see what he wants for the Charles Atlas company. And I said, how much are you asking? And he says to me, uh, well, I'm looking to get $100,000 because the name is a trademark. And the company was only making about $20,000 a year. And Lou Weiss says, ain't no way in hell I'm going to give him $100,000. Know? <laughs> but it was kind of funny, though, because I did have a chance of purchasing something, but I didn't have the money to do it. <laughs> well, hey, guys, we got about 40 seconds left. So 
we're going to wrap it up here. Um, let everybody out there know to catch us every Wednesday live on YouTube at uh, 11 p.m. Eastern time. We're also on your favorite uh, podcast uh, platform, Spotify, uh, iTunes, all that stuff. Uh, also, head over to houseoftheunusual.com. We have a free newsletter and a free forum site. Join up and uh, talk with some like-minded uh, people on there and have a good time. So I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Roberto for, for coming on and joining us. And Eddie, you know, thanks as always for stopping by. Okay, so, gentlemen. Thank you, Good guys. Talking to you. Good Eddie, night, guys. See you tomorrow. I got your Christmas gift. <laughs> I will be over. Okay. Good night, guys. Bye.